Coming up this hour, we're going to hit some headlines, and then we're joined by Lucas and Evelyn Cortazio of Community Music. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you're joining us today. As we've been doing for the last, I don't know how long, couple of months, we've been committing this first segment to not really taking a deep dive into any one topic, but kind of hitting a couple of headlines that came across our newsfeed that we thought were worth letting people in on. If, by the way, you think any of these require a deeper dive, you can shoot us a message over the Facebook page and uh, we would love to do that. Brian, Mm-hmm. As I've been trying to do a better job of, rather than just getting straight down to brass tacks, how are you doing? You doing okay? Well, I'm just heading right into this first story. No, yeah, I'm doing great, man. <laughs> I'm doing well. And uh, it's so funny because you ask me this every time. You mm-hmm. think I'd, I'd be prepared to do so, but it just feels like a very normal day. And uh, you know what I do have tonight? Uh, I don't know if you guys do this at your church or at least uh, maybe if not at your current church, at your old church, the old congregational meeting, you know, which is a good time. Oh, yeah. Everybody gather. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we can't do them now. We're doing a, for the first time ever, obviously, and don't know how it's going to go, a Zoom congregational meeting tonight. That'd be fun. And uh, yeah, I actually am really looking forward to it and really nervous about it because of all the like the moving parts. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll be great. You, we, we, we have our leadership community tonight. Same kind of thing. So, yeah, it's not yep. it's not you, it's totally doable. You know how you know how me and technology go. So, no, I'm excited for it. It'll That's be good. True. <laughs> it'll especially be good to see some faces of people that I haven't seen in a long time. Right. I've yeah. emailed with them or talked to them, but this will be, you know, albeit not in person over Zoom, but a, a good opportunity to reconnect. So it's been a good day. Uh, that's kind of hanging over, ready for that tonight. But other than that, I am, we are counting down. What are we, nine days till Christmas, which seems crazy, but uh, get, starting to get in the feeling. How are you today? I am, I'm doing just fine, but we got to get to it, Brian. We got to, we got, we got to move, man. That uh, people don't need to hear about my boring life. Uh, you want to pick a headline? Uh, From CBN News, predators love all the Internet shopping. Here's how to avoid scams while Christmas shopping. And so, you know, it is the most magical time of year. And you would never (laughs) think that anybody would use it as a way to steal from people. But it says here, with many retail stores closed, the way people are shopping more than ever has changed. Many of those who usually go to the mall or brick and mortar stores are finding themselves buying online for the first time. That makes them an easy target. First of all, it's crazy to think some people are doing this for the first time, but uh, it does make them an easy target for online predators, but there are ways to protect yourself. So I'll quickly read their list of ways to protect yourself. Don't use public Wi-Fi. Ensure that websites, websites start with HTTPS. Don't save credit card on the site. Review your credit card transactions, sign up for alerts after the transaction is made, and don't open attachments from unknown senders. So for some of you, you're like, duh. But for others of you who are maybe you're kind of wading into this this year because of uh, all that's going on with COVID and stuff, uh, some helpful stuff to remember. Okay, next one out of AP is some really good news. Over-the-counter home test for COVID-19 gets U.S. green light. This is from a couple days ago. But the first home test for COVID-19 that doesn't require a prescription will soon be on U.S. Uh, store shelves. U.S. regulators Tuesday authorized the rapid coronavirus test, which can be done entirely at home. The announcement by the Food and Drug Administration represents another important, though incremental, step in efforts to expand testing options. Is I mean, am I right to be really excited about this, Brian? Or uh, is there oh, like a dark, is there a dark shadow of skepticism that uh, I'm not seeing here? 
the only skepticism would be how effective is it, right? Like, sure. you know, you'll, you keep hearing all these things about false positives. This, but if this is effective, this is a game changer. I mean, this is yeah. enormous. You're not having to wait in your car in a line and wait a couple of days, but get it in 20 minutes. No, this is a huge deal. And it, again, highlights the amazing uh uh, the amazing speed with which uh, really smart scientists and doctors are moving right now, whether it be the vaccine or testing, it's just craziness. Well, and not only that, they're saying it's you know going to be like thirty bucks. I was like, well, that'd be nice if it's accessible, but if it's going to be one hundred and forty bucks, though, that's that's a, bit of a, a downer. So thirty bucks. Hopefully, this is available everywhere very 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 soon. Okay, you want to take the next step? Shoplifting food and hygiene products is on the rise in the U.S. as financial aid runs out. This is really hard one yeah. uh, that they're seeing people just not shoplifting, right, because they want to or think they can get away. Like literally uh, what analysis is finding out right now is that people just can't afford food or hygiene because of all that's going on with the pandemic. It highlights, hopefully, the federal government's going to do some stimulus here coming up. But yeah, it's just sad. You read this and it's uh, the beginning of the article talks about Les Mis and, and what come, you know, the, the kind of similar story from the well-known musical Les Mis. It's just, uh, it's just hard. You read a story like this at Christmas time or at any time and it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, no kidding, man. All right. So we got a couple more left. One of them will be a, a precursor to later in the show. Lawmakers face shutdown deadline amid stimulus talks. Is this one you've been following? I know that you're a big CNN guy. <laughs> I'm a big CNN guy. I, I've been following the fact that the stimulus bill looks like it's going to involve some money for everybody uh, and that people really need it. And that hopefully it finally seems like they're starting to come together. Now, if anything, we know from our politicians, uh, it could easily fall apart. But the, uh, there's a, you know some shutdowns, some deadlines coming up. So. I think the the takeaway is they're making some progress. And, you know, if you're the type to call a lawmaker or whatever, kind of urge them across the finish line, now's the time to do something like that. All right. So here's one that we're actually going to commit an entire segment to a little bit later in the show. Pornhub removes majority of videos in a victory for Exodus Cry. And then the subheading from our friend Kate Shelnut. But the fight against exploitation continues with new momentum from Nicholas Kristoff investigation. So this one uh, is. It's so like deeply embedded and the more, mm -hmm. the, the more that I read and the more that I learn, the more I'm thinking, gosh, there's just not a lot about this industry and this organization that I actually know, which is why I wanted to commit an entire segment to it later. But I want to start the show because it does feel like it still is a victory worth celebrating. And I don't, I don't know Correct. if you've been following it all or not, if you have a sense or a feeling or a response now, or do you want to wait till we talk about it later? Yeah, my only response is that I have seen some articles about it, and it seems like the more that people talk about it, the more it's forcing Pornhub to to make bit better restrictions. And it's an insidious, not just industry, but site altogether. And so it is good that something there is some good coming out of it, but much, much further still to go. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, like always, all of those articles are up at our Facebook page, not just for your perusal, although that's part of it. But we would love to hear from you. You can weigh in in the comments section or you can send us a private message. Uh, our, our kind of dream and hope for this show has always been for this to be a, a community and a, a place for conversation, even and maybe especially when we disagree. So all of those links and every story we've ever done is up on the Facebook page at Common Good Talk. But coming up next, Lucas and Evelyn Cortazio of Community Music are going to join us for two segments here in the Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And uh, I am absolutely thrilled to have not for one, but for two segments, real-life friends of mine 
from Community <laughs> Music, Lucas and Evelyn Cortazio. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for having us, yeah. bro. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you guys. Would you would you just take a, a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience? Two minutes, yes. I would take <laughs> two minutes. Uh, we are uh, Lucas and Evelyn Cortazio. We are worship pastors. Uh, been married for fifteen years. Parents to Luca, who's thirteen, going on fourteen. Levi, eleven, going on on twelve. Lana, nine. Eight, going on nine. Mm. And I think our motto is just, we're just trying to not mess those kids up and the people that we lead up. I guess it's a great intro. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and as part of your bio, I see from Brazil, I, I just got to know the story. Just a Reader's Digest version. How do you come from Brazil into cold Naperville? What's the route to get there? And how hard is it, especially this time of the year? Uh, that's a oh, that's a long story. I'll try, I'll try to keep it short. Mm-hmm. I moved here with my family, actually to Boston. Um, when I was 12, um, and then Lucas moved to Boston as well with his family when he was 12. Um, and we met at a Brazilian church in Boston, Lucas Mm -hmm. and I, um, and there are a lot of Brazilians in Boston. So it's not like a very uncommon thing, but it's also a beautiful thing that we met, you know, two Brazilians, um, Hmm. meeting in Boston and did ministry there for three years. We're part of, I mean, we're part of church planning. There's so much that goes into that, Mm -hmm. but then almost seven, I mean, six, six and a half years ago, um, God called us to Naperville, Illinois, another (laughs) very cold place. (laughs) So (laughs) what was, what was Token's line, uh, from the from the fire into the frying pan or something like that. (laughs) Just take that and and flip it. And that's what God has done with us. That's right. That's right. I think that's he had Boston and Naperville in mind, actually, when he wrote that. I think, yeah, I think you're right. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so some of our audience are church-going folk, but plenty that listen to the show aren't, and they're probably wondering, okay, so how do you go from worship pastors to community music? Can you explain a little bit of that journey and what, what community music actually is? Yeah, so actually, Ian, you you got to be a part of the very mm-hmm. beginning of community music, and right. um, we had been doing ministry here for uh, two years, and we just— uh, felt like God was asking us to start writing original songs for our church, give language to our folks to, um, when they're singing. Um, and there's nothing wrong with borrowing other people's songs. Um, but I, we actually both strongly agree on this, that every church out there should be writing their own songs. Like we ask most pastors out there or teachers or preachers to be writing their own sermons. And um, so we just started on this journey and, uh, it's become uh, a, a catalyst for our community when it comes to language in music. Uh, but beyond that, uh, it's really allowed us to create worship culture uh, for our church. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, for New Thing at large as well. New Thing is the, uh, the church planning organization that community started uh, about 15 years ago. And mm-hmm. it's now, you know, it encompasses about 6,000 churches in over 40 countries, which is a ridiculous number. Um, mm-hmm. But the songwriting piece has really allowed us the influence to speak into the worship culture <clears throat> that so desperately needs to be spoken into, I think, all yeah. around. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating because obviously Ian's a pastor, as am I. And, you know, when it comes to worship, you get people, I want to sing the oldest songs possible. I want to sing the newest. You know, the people always have opinions. So uh, when you went the route of doing your own songs for your church, did you guys get a lot of pushback or did you feel like this was something your church was really ready for? Or or have you guys had to grow into it a little bit? (laughs) That's a good question, man. (laughs) Uh, uh, We got some pushback. Uh, Mm -hmm. 
but I'd say 80, 20, 80% right. of, of the people, whether on staff or at the churches, uh, church goers, um, <clears throat> really 80% of them really, um, supported it yeah. and, and mm-hmm. have, and I think we've, we've seen that 80 number grow from 80 to 99%. Most, I, I haven't heard any pushback in a while right. now, but uh, but early on, whenever you're trying anything new, you're doing anything new, mm-hmm. uh, there's always some pushback, relational pushback or whatnot. And, um, you know, uh, those have really taught us to uh, to grow, to be grounded, to yeah. to ask the right questions. Why are we doing this again and again and again? Just to make sure that we are mm-hmm. uh, in the center of, of what God has really called us to do and not falling in love with, especially when there's success uh, around anything that you do, right? You can quickly fall in love with the traps that the world will present you. And mm-hmm. uh, so for us, it's been really paramount that we remain rooted um, mm. in, 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 in Christ first, first and foremost, but also rooted in relationships. Yeah. And I can certainly attest to that too, because it feels like every time we sing a new song at community, everyone's really eager to ask, is that, a, is that a community music song? Like people are <laughs> preemptively championing the work that community music is doing because there feels like a collective sense of, like ownership, like, oh man, this is, this is, this is for us before the global church. And I, you know, we've talked a good deal off air, obviously about worship culture and maybe mm. the current state of worship culture and maybe where we see it going. I'd, I'd love to hear more of your heart there. Kind of what do you <laughs> see the culture as right now, maybe even especially in a pandemic? And what do you think is really kind of the future of, of worship culture? Ooh, future of worship culture. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I think this year, um, has taught all of us a lot um, it, about worship. I I know that for many worship, like even worship leaders and worship pastors, um, it has caused us to really focus, especially if you've gone online and you don't have, you're not on the stage and you're not, you know, uh, leading on a stage um, that I think it can take you to a place of a little of a, of of a bit of an identity crisis, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's, and that's okay. And I, and I feel that God, you know, the beauty and the gift of this year and this season that we've been through um, has really taught us a lot about the audience of one and what we really, I mean, what that really is about. So culture, you know, worship culture is really worshiping God all the time. I mean, we've mm-hmm. talked about this with every breath. Um, it's a lifestyle. It's everything that we do. So I, I really feel it's almost kind of like a reset <laughs> that we've been in kind of just yeah. like a, a reset, a realignment, in sorts. Um, and that's what I mean, that's our hope, right? For the future. Mm-hmm. It's that the, the worship culture is a every breath and not only singing on Sundays. Culture. Right. Brian, you even said it when, when you speak the word worship out loud in a church setting, people go to music <laughs> right away. Mm-hmm. Right. If you had done this 2000 years ago, people would have gone to animal sacrifice. And mm-hmm. um, we fall into those little traps as well. So when we, t- when we say building worship culture, it actually has nothing to do with music. Mm-hmm. Uh, music mm-hmm. is a tool for us, uh, it's a means to an end for sure. Uh, but it's really getting folks to understand that uh, they're at, the only choice perhaps in worship, and we can talk about this going forward for, for more than the time that we have right now, but uh, off, off air, but uh, the really choice, the, the only choice I think we have in worship, it's not, you know, where do we worship or how do we worship, but really who mm. or what, who, who are we worshiping right now? I don't think we have a choice in worshiping. I think mm-hmm. we're always worshiping something. Uh, the question is who or what, at least yeah. for us. Yeah. yeah. Good. And Lucas, Evelyn did a really good job there. I thought talking about what it's been like to be a worship leader during a pandemic and, and how mm-hmm. that is. I'm just curious, how's it been for you, Lucas? It's been the best time of my life. <laughs> it's been <laughs> phenomenal. 
Uh, I mean, we, we've had its ups and downs, but um, really, we haven't we haven't felt this close to the Father uh, mm-hmm. in a very long time, man. Uh, and and I think um, it's 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 hard to say this out loud, and I've I've had to say it out loud quite a few times. But this pandemic, obviously, and so I'll preface it with this: obviously, people are losing their lives, their livelihoods, their jobs, their companies that they've worked so hard for. Uh, mm-hmm. Their identity is at uh, you know is being. Uh, um, uh, attacked right now in so many different ways, mm-hmm. uh, but it's really been a gift to Evelyn and I and the kids in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been great. Awesome. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the song "Make Room." My guess is actually that there's a number of people listening right now who are familiar with that song, who have heard it sung at this point now by by multiple people. And not, I mean, not to put you guys on the spot. I know that it just passed like a million streams on Spotify. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about. Uh, Really, two questions. One, what's come of the the story and history behind Make Room, and what is it like watching a song like that, like catch fire and capture the hearts of people, not just here in America but around the world? Mm, wow, yeah, it's crazy. I'll I'll talk a little bit about how the song was birthed, um, okay, and we can kind of expound on that. But uh, we wrote the song two and a half years ago. Um, in Nashville with a couple of friends of ours, uh, Josh Farrow and Becca Williams. And this song really kind of changed how we went into co-writing for Lucas and I. Uh, We went into it just to really experience God. And it was just an encounter with the Holy Spirit, that whole session. A friend of ours who was in that session, she wasn't writing, but she was just in Nashville at the time and we invited her to be a part. She was actually healed. Uh, in the room as we were writing the song. And it was just really about, so when I, like, when we talk about the song and the way that it's traveling and God is just got like, just opening, just, you know, opening up so much, you know, in the song and so much space for the song. And I think it's just because it carries an encounter and we really encountered, like when we talk about making room, we were making room in that, in that session, we Hmm. prayed for over an hour. I think. Um, and we just seeked the Lord and we, you know, there was just so many tears and I mean, we just Mm. prayed up a bunch and then the song kind of, we don't really remember how the song, we remember how (laughs) kind of the chorus came to be. (laughs) Our friend brought the chorus to the right, but then the rest of it is kind of like, we were hit by a truck or something, the best kind of truck, but yeah. (laughs) The Jesus truck. (laughs) The Jesus truck, the Holy spirit truck. But yeah, it just really carries an encounter. Um, It does. And, you know, God, like Evelyn said, and you uh, mentioned it too, Ian, it is traveling and it, it is just crazy to uh, experience that. I mean, it's very humbling. And uh, you don't, at least I hope, if songwriters are listening out there, I hope you don't go into any songwriting, you know, uh, space thinking about what the song can do. Because I think what the song does in the moment, what it's meant for, first and foremost, is just a vertical and a, horizontal encounter in the moment uh one with one with god and and with each other uh and i think that the song did it for us in that moment yeah. and now we also pray at the end of every co-write and we say just god i mean we we, we give this song right back to you and whatever whatever you want to do with the song from here on out it's yeah. your problem it's not <laughs> ours anymore <laughs> so you deal with it and that's what he's done we don't have to force anything we've never asked anybody to post about the song we've never um, you know, reached out to anybody, uh, asking them to record the song. God has just done it, man. Mm-hmm. And, and just to watch that flow happen without 
my strength or Evelyn's strength or the mm-hmm. strength of community is just so beautiful. Yeah. yeah Can I great. add something to that really quick? Yeah, absolutely. It just it, it it just feels to me to like that being faithful to the moment is really, really important. When we wrote the song two and a half years ago, we were writing for that moment and we're really writing for our church to give language mm-hmm. to our church, but just to look back and just God's faithfulness and just there is a song for different times. And just to see how this song traveled, even this past year, yeah. um, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's God orchestrating this whole thing. So even to just encourage whoever's listening out there, write the song for this season and just trust it and trust it to God and to his faithfulness. And maybe you never know, like five years from now, 10 years from now is going to be the song that people yeah. need, you know? Right. Yeah. And so it's kind of fascinating that you guys uh, are working at a church together. You write songs together. You're obviously married, raising kids. Like, what is what is the fun part of that? And I'll put it nicely. What are the boundaries that you have to set up oh. when you're a married couple, working together, raising kids? How do you navigate all that together? Mm, man, how, mu- how much time do we have left? <laughs> my clock here. Um, I think... Um, all of it is fun. You know, there's a, I won't, I won't name the, the writer I got this from cause we could get in trouble, all of us. But, um, <laughs> he said, everything is bliss. And we, and we sometimes play non bliss just to experience bliss a little bit better, which is insanity. Um, so all of it is bliss, man. It's all, it's all fun. It's all, uh, there's work involved and in, in there's hard times involved in it. Obviously. I think we've, we've learned a lot over yeah. the last 15 years of marriage and, and mostly all of those years, doing ministry together um, in all sorts of different ways. Um, you know, we, we try not to talk about work in, especially when it's, you know, in a negative connotation, we try not right. to talk about it uh, at the house. Um, I try not to share information that she doesn't need about work. That is negative. She tries the same thing with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I don't need to know, I don't need to know. If she doesn't need to know, she doesn't need to know. So right. we try to build those boundaries in it. And then there's relational boundaries. I think I said this to Ian uh, before we hired him, actually, we were having dinner and I said, man, like the, our circles keep growing smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And people can look at that as like, oh, it's it's a sad thing. But we just we just really need uh, like f- friends that we can trust um, that aren't yes people around us. Uh, friends that push us, friends yeah. that keep us honest. Um, <clears throat> that's what we need. And so that circle of people is very small for Evelyn and I. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's kind of intentional in, in a way. Um yeah, and it's kept, it's kept us going so far. So far, so good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Evelyn, is there anything that you would add to that? Um, I I I just what I feel like stirring in my heart right now, even if as an encouragement to, because I struggle with that a lot, like doing ministry with right. my husband while while with three kids, you know, um, mm-hmm. especially as our schedule and our you know life got crazier and crazier. I remember having those times where. I question, like, especially for our kids, growing up in the church, being at church all the time. Ian, you know, you've seen our kids like (laughs) sleeping in green rooms and, and, you know, I mean, and they're champs and they're amazing. And I think that like the kids that they are now and who they'll grow up to be, all of this has shaped them a lot in this. But I remember just, you know, maybe a couple of years ago or even three years ago, just, just surrendering it to God again and again, believing that God loves like if he he entrusted us with this he entrusted us lucas and i with our kids he loves them beyond we could love them um he loves lucas more than i could ever love lucas and vice versa and just trusting god in the process of just like hey 
once again, we're surrendering like our marriage, our kids, our ministry, everything that you have entrusted us with, we're giving it back to you because we know that you have the best um, in store for us. So yeah. it's it's just a constant reminder, you know, uh, for, for all of us as we do this together. That's so good. And I know, you know, firsthand that, I mean, you guys are, I, I think, phenomenal songwriters and worship leaders. But I also know like at your heart, you're, you guys are also pastors and you care about actual people and I, i'd love for like the the minute and a half or so that we have left yeah. could you just speak a word of hope to people like it's almost cliche to say it at this point it's been a crazy wild year for literally everybody mm-hmm. and whether they're a church person or not whether they believe in jesus or not they're into this worship thing or not could you just mm-hmm. take a minute or two and, and just speak some words of hope to them yeah um you know, we, we, we do, we do believe in this God. I mean, some, some people have other language for it, like energy or the universe or whatever, whatever language you're comfortable with. I'd, I'd love for you to just think on that, on, on that right now and just focus on that. And, um, I, we believe in this God, this energy, this, this force, uh, of goodness, of kindness, of love. Um, but, but one that isn't just far away, one that is actually very present, very close, always here whatever here means, whatever now means to you, you can encounter that God. So our prayer for you is that, you know, 2020 uh, isn't a wasted year. 2020 is a year where you, you've learned uh, things about yourself that you you didn't know before. Um, 2020 is a year that you were challenged beyond belief um, in ways that you have never been challenged before. Um, And if you're listening to this, you survived. (laughs) You are alive right now. And I hope that you look at that uh, and receive the gift of life in a way that transforms everything that you do. The world needs you to be who you're called to be. Um, warts and and, and, and uh, brokenness and all that stuff. The world needs you. So don't stop being you. So good. That's a good word. Uh, Lucas and Evelyn, this has been a lot of fun. Glad to have you with us. Why don't you tell people everywhere they can find you, social media, websites, wherever they can go find your guys' stuff. Oh, my gosh. You can find us on Instagram, um, Community Music. Yeah. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Community Music as well. You can just look that up or on YouTube. Community um, Music. Community Music. <laughs> you just, you just look up Community Music. You can find mm-hmm. us in all of those. We're not on Twitter. Wherever That's you stream, <laughs> wherever you stream music, you can find yes. us there. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Right on again. Our guests today have been Lucas and Evelyn Cortazio from Community Music. We've talked about Make Room, but also Name Above the Grave and their latest single, Nothing He Can't Do, are available on Apple Music and Spotify. Can't encourage you enough to check it out. Personally, I'm super grateful for the both of you guys. Thank you so much for the ways that you love people, both locally and now really around the globe. Really appreciate you guys. Thank you. We Thank appreciate you both us. of you. Hey, thanks, man. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. So glad that you are here. But I mentioned this at the very top of the hour. Uh, Some news about Pornhub and the porn industry. I actually have three links here, and there's no way we're going to get to all three of them. But I I put them in here because I wanted to make sure they got shared to the page because I think think that they're all really powerful. Two are from Christian sources, but this one from New York Times, just the headline alone I thought was fascinating. uh, MasterCard and Visa stop allowing their cards to be used on Pornhub. That is mm-hmm. massive. That is that is such a big deal. And I remember bringing this up to uh, a couple of friends, gosh, just a few days ago. And and they'd never heard of Pornhub before. So either that or maybe they were messing with me. But I feel like we've <laughs> talked about 
the porn industry a couple of times over the last That's few right. years on this show. And this to me, I was like, oh, man, I shame on me for not even having like big enough prayers to pray for something like this to say, nope, we're not going to allow our cards on that anymore at all is gosh, such a big deal. But uh, we don't have to we don't have to linger on that story. I'm, I'd be really curious if there's one of the other two Christian sources that you'd be interested in taking a deeper dive into. Yeah, I'd love to jump into the Christianity Day one, but but what is interesting, real fast, on the MasterCard and Visa one, people have been wondering, well, why now? Why are they backing up? Well, Nicholas Kristof sure, yeah. at New York Times reported that the platform Pornhub included videos of child abuse and rape, and Pornhub has like been backtracking, trying to get, you know, is this true? And now other people, you know, MasterCard, Visa go, well, uh, to be blunt, it's not good for us to be on there anymore with them. And so now they're pulling out. And so it, again, as a total aside, it reminds you of the power of good journalism as well. Yeah, right. Um, you know, Nicholas Kristoff writes about this, exposes it, and now uh, meaningful changes are happening. And uh, so that's a good thing. Uh, Kate Shellnut at Christiana Day wrote this, Pornhub removes majority of videos in a victory for Exodus Cry. She said the anti-trafficking ministry Exodus Cry is celebrating significant progress in its fight to take down the world's largest porn site, which is Pornhub, which announced Monday that it had pulled millions of unverified videos. It said the move could represent, quote, one of the most significant actions ever taken Mm. Uh, against criminal pornography. Exodus Cry's long campaign against Pornhub recently got a major boost, as we just talked about, uh, through the December 4th investigation by New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof, which was has spurred political and economic fallout from the site. His expose detailed what the ministry's director of abolition uh, had been saying through its tra uh, trafficking hub campaign for years, that videos of assault involving underage girls, rape, and other exploitative uh, content continue to be posted and reposted on the user-generated porn site, and the company is not doing enough to stop it. So again, we'll pause there. Pornhub is an insidious and just terrible thing, but it, the expose made it, if, it if, if this was at all possible, showed that it's worse than anybody ever thought, that there's these millions of unverified videos of criminal activity, of underage, um, of activity that is just, like I just said, criminal. Uh, and this article, this expose, uh, un, uh, unearthed this stuff. And so now um, Pornhub is trying to go through and pull all of them and send millions of videos, which is one of the saddest lines that I've read <laughs> is that there's millions of videos. And so uh, we can grieve that those videos even exist. We can grieve that something like Pornhub even exists. And we can celebrate that at least there's some victory going on here. Well, let me let me ask you a question that I I have I actually have heard from thoughtful Christians before in the past. Um, what if, in the case of you know, two consenting adults, obvi obviously, any any of the exploitation of mm -hmm. minors is just the most horrific. Like it's making my stomach turn right now. Mm -hmm. But do you think, Pastor Brian, that <laughs> there is any case to be made for consenting adults to earn a living? And consenting married folks to, I don't know, consume media like that within the confines of marriage or whatever. Like, is there any universe in your mind where that I, mean, I, I really am kind of putting you on the spot? Sorry, you really are. <laughs> <laughs> but like all, all of those things in place, is there any universe you think? Yeah, all right. I can sign off on that. So when you when you frame it like that, is there any universe? I would say yes. 
but I would not subscribe. I would not uh, be okay with that universe. So I'll, I'll split them that way. I can I can understand the argument, but for me, understanding the amount of damage uh, that that I believe the pornography industry has done over mm. the years and and the addictive um, nature of it and all sorts of other things, I would never tell even two consenting adults. Yeah, you know, I, I can see. So lawfully and whatever do you do you ask, do you see a way that this could be? Sure, I do, but I would never uh, mm. be supportive of that. Uh, nor would I ever tell even a married couple that that's a healthy thing for you to do, or that's uh, even a neutral thing for you to do. Okay, uh, so that's how I would answer it. You're, you're Let saying, me flip the question. Well, hold on. You're <laughs> you're saying legally you could sign off on it, but never morally. I think so. I think so. And I'd probably still fight the legality of it just because I don't want to see more of it uh, in our country. I'm saying I can understand the legality argument, um, but I'd still be uncomfortable by it being legal. How about yourself? Let's turn it on you. Oh, great question, Brian. I guess that that felt kind of self congratulatory. <laughs> the only question was, "What do you think?" <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. I'm realizing now, now that I've said it. Um, no, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think morally, I I could ever get there. Not simply because, how would I, how would I say this existentially? I don't think consent is the only determiner of morality and ethics. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Does, so like he, yes. even if you're saying, okay, hey, person A and B on the screen have consented, a person A and B in the suburban home have consented, and it was, you know, purchased legally and it was filmed legal, you know, all of that. Um, I, I think the the moral character and ethical order that Christ followers are called to is mm-hmm. well, one, this is sort of an easy an easy out is the above reproach. So at the very mm-hmm. least, if like, hey, if you would have a hard time explaining this, maybe to you know your small group leader, then that's not a, not a great sign necessarily. But I think it's, I think it's deeper than that because I think it's, I think pornography at its core is, is deception. I think it Mm -hmm. is, it's a, it's a shadow at best of like something that God has designed in a very specific way. Um, yeah, I, I, I should have been more prepared, I guess, for you to turn that on me. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I think it I mean it it sexualizes the depiction of of human persons promising someone who's watching something that it it can't deliver. You know what I mean? Like it's uh yes. it's smoke and mirrors. It's a it's a little bit of sleight of hand, I think, and that's that's part of what makes it so destructive is because like at the beginning of this Gospel Coalition article begins with a quote by uh Chris Offit, who said, My father often told me if not for pornography, he'd have become a serial killer. And I've heard a lot of people make the argument like, man, uh, pornography is what keeps my anger and rage at bay. You're like, well, why don't we have a deeper discussion about your anger it's and rage problem. then, rather <laughs> yeah. than like, rather than this escapism, whether it was pornography or just escaping through like endless sitcom viewing. That's still a, mm-hmm. an escape. That's not dealing with why do you have this rage monster at all times? You know right. what I mean? So, at the end of the day, for reasons maybe that would surprise people, because it's not just simply for me about oh, you shouldn't be viewing two naked bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's I think it's much more spiritual than that. I think it's much more holistic than that, and that's what I would I would love to see more conversations that get at the root of the issue rather than just yeah, porn is bad. Stay away because we saw how well that worked out in you know youth group 
talks like <laughs> don't have right. sex 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 is bad and then every like 16 year old is like well now that's all i want to do is have sex. All I you know what i mean yeah. so i, I would i would say as pastors also we could probably spill, spend an entire segment talking about the individuals and the marriages we've seen wrecked by pornography absolutely and so to, to even have a talk about legality versus this and you're just has these people's faith these people these marriages in your mind going yeah, no, there's there's no redeeming value here. There's yeah. this is just destructive. I know you've we could fill more than a segment of stories for both you and I of that. And and that alone is just, you know, we got to continue to bang this drum against it. Well, and I, and I mentioned it every time we talk about this topic, triplexchurch.com is one of the best resources that I've found. If you or anyone you know is struggling in this area, go to xxxchurch.com. And uh, I think that's a great place to start. Coming up next, though, nine signals that your hormones may be hijacking your leadership. That's from Charles Stone coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're like. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about depression, leadership, and Amazon. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Brian and I mentioned it a lot. You know, we're both pastors. So sometimes we maybe gravitate towards articles regarding church or leadership or theology. But I'm always trying to think, you know, more broadly. We know that not obviously not everyone who listens is a pastor. So this article here from Church Leaders is kind of written from a pastoral perspective, but I think it has a ton of application and takes a, a kind of unique angle on this this idea around leadership and what maybe hurdles to our leadership may be. So, uh, Brian Fromm, would you like to get us into it? I would. It's called Nine Signals Your Hormones May Be Hijacking Your Leadership. It's written by a man by the name of Charles Stone. Uh, do you ever think he went by Chuck Rock or something like that? <laughs> Charles Ch- I, Stone. I don't think people do nicknames for their last name, Brian. But it would be like for this one to be perfect. I don't know where that just came from. <laughs> Chuck Rock just sounds like a, like a caveman instructing another caveman. Like, I think when this guy's doing serious work, he's Charles Stone. But by night, he's Chuck Rock. <laughs> that's that's like his uh, his like 70s rock and roll band name. <laughs> this is exactly it. We're all about to Chuck Rock. <laughs> oh, it's his alter ego, Chuck Rock. Anyway, <laughs> Charles Stone wrote this. God gave us a magnificent creation called the brain. Weighing less than three pounds, it wields incredible influence over how well leaders lead. Although we usually call the brain a computer, it's more like a pharmacy that constantly dispenses drugs, hormones, and Hmm. neurotransmitters into our bodies and brains which affect our emotions, our thinking, and our leadership. A new field called neuroleadership, parenthetically Ian's dream, uh, is helping (sighs) leaders understand how brain function relates to leadership. It's a burgeoning field pastors and leaders should pay attention to. He talks about his most recent book, Brain Savvy Leaders, The Science of Significant Ministry, Intersects Brain Science and Biblical Principles on Leadership. Oh, I got to ask, have you ever heard of this, this intersection, this study specifically about brain science with biblical principles of leadership? You have? Oh, my goodness. Yes, sir. Eat, sleep, dream it. I think I'm not sure if you're joking or not, because, you know, you are the brain science guy. Okay. He goes on to write, brain researchers have discovered that sustained high levels of hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline affect our ability to think clearly, creatively, and decisively, thus diminishing our ability to lead most effectively. And how do sustained high levels of these hormones get into our system? 
They get there from chronic anxiety when we face long-term stress. It's akin to a car accelerator getting stuck and revving at high RPMs for a long period of time. If it continues, the engine will wear out Mm. uh, prematurely. In the same way, when leaders and pastors stay stressed 24-7, their anxiety and thus their hormones get stuck at a high level, which dramatically reduces their ability to lead. So he's going to give us an assessment here, but that that's really is fascinating. I didn't see that that's where this article was going, that uh, when, when he talks about your hormones and, and your inability to like uh, uh, your ability to lead being tied back to not just your hormones, but being tied back to anxiety and 24 seven stress. And, and the reason that, uh, that that's a big deal is I think a lot of us pastors or anybody who leads Right. feels pretty stressed out and a lot of the time and pretty anxious. And sometimes we wear that as a badge of honor, like, oh, I got oh, so much sure. to be stressed out about. And this article, and it's saying this new kind of way of thinking, not way of thinking, but this new research is saying, hey, not only is anxiety bad for you, it just makes you a bad leader. It makes you a worse leader. And uh, yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. Well, and I think not only do we wear it as a badge, it's almost the caricature of leadership in TVs and movies. The person's always... Not always. They're often pretty anxious, pretty aggressive, pretty short tempered. Like that's almost become if you ask any random American, hey, depict a leader, a boss. My guess is 80 percent would, you know, outline something that they've mentioned in this article already. Maybe not anxious, but certainly the symptoms of anxiety. And so I, I thought this assessment was helpful. And then we'll, we'll take a deeper dive. It says take this simple assessment to discover how many chronic anxiety markers are currently in your life. Number one, I react and act impulsively when people disagree with me. Uh-oh. Number two. <laughs> it's going to be one of those assessments. Yeah, jeez, well, Louise. <laughs> Number two, I assume the worst and connect dots where there are none. Oh, I knew they were going to do that one. Number three, I easily get defensive. No, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> we both did yep. it. <laughs> Number four, I don't seem to be as creative as I once was. Number five, I often find myself in a mental and emotional fog. Ooh, that's a good word. Number six, I lose perspective easily. Number seven, I don't listen well to others, not because I don't want to, but because my mind wanders and I can't focus. Number eight, I find it difficult to concentrate. And number nine, I find that others often mirror my defensiveness and reactivity. How many markers did you find? If more than two, your hormone accelerator is probably stuck and you aren't leading at your best. Okay, so were you expecting that number to be two, Ryan? <laughs> no <laughs> they're like if you have seven or more you might be in trouble they're like no if you have two two on this list you might you might need to uh conduct it's, an assessment it's really hard because as you read those honestly and i've i think i do worse with anxiety than i used to and stress but mm. with that said i don't consider myself to be an overly anxious person you read those nine and none of them were i were like was i like yeah that totally defines me but every one of them i'm like yeah sometimes yeah yeah <laughs> yep <laughs> increasingly yeah yeah uh, you know increasingly were, right so then when it said if it was more than two i was like oh no Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i want to i want to read the three uh he shares three simple statements that have helped him with their stress hormones which you know because you've talked a number of times on the show you're much better at taking vacations than i like mm-hmm. those are the types of things that people i think people would be surprised to know that you could be both good at vacation taking and rest and still identify with eight out of nine of those. You know what I mean? Like it's, so it's, it's not, they're not always part and parcel. And I I think these three were good. Uh, Number one, divert daily, take time out to reflect and be still before God every day. Secondly, withdraw weekly, take a weekly Sabbath. 
And then three, abandon annually. Take a vacation every year when you truly disconnect. So I liked mm-hmm. for obvious reasons because it's, you know, D-D-W-W-A-A. But, but memorable, though. Like every day, that's the thing. I think a lot of people don't divert daily and don't withdraw weekly and then expect their six-and-a-half-day vacation every year to, like, solve all the rest of the issues they've been dealing with the other 51 weeks of the year. And I think mm-hmm. that's borderline like the American way, isn't it? It totally is. I, I will never forget Kelly Brady, the pastor that I first worked under. Uh, I remember, and not everybody can, what I'm about to say, not everybody can do. I'm fully aware of that going in. But he once told me when possible, he tries to take a two, one two-week trip a year because the first week is just decompressing. And like, yes, he doesn't feel right. like he starts relaxing and kind of recharging until week two. And again, fully aware, not everybody can do that. Uh, but I'll never forget that when he said that to me, like, yeah, I try to take two weeks at least once a year because that first week I'm still stressed and mm-hmm. I'm still just trying to get down from whatever it is going through. And so, yeah, but it's the daily stuff where I struggle, man. I don't struggle with the vacation. As you said, I don't right. struggle. I, I struggle with the daily and the weekly there, like taking time during your day instead of like waking up and immediately going at it right away. Uh, and also that weekly Sabbath, which you've talked a lot about, I think, especially because you and I have now two jobs like it could be you can really talk yourself out of it every week uh, <laughs> yeah, and the ability sure. to do it. Uh, so those I, I struggle much more in the daily and the weekly than I do. Like, you know, I can like you joke, I can vacation, but sometimes I can't unplug in a day or in a week. You know, that's a really great point, too, that maybe we'll uh, expand on later, because you can talk yourself out of a Sabbath because you still have your computer, you still have your phone, you're still here, you're still at your house. You know, it's the nice thing about a vacation is like, well, I hopped on this plane or I, you know, I've, right. I'm i in this new state now. I can't run to the office anymore. There's almost something to like my geography. Well, I guess you could always take your, your cell phone, your computer with you, which you could still get work done. But there is something about, especially in a pandemic, like, well, technically it's my day off, but like my home office is three feet that way. So I, <laughs> yeah. I can easily just keep on working and there's no you know, legal recourse if I don't. But either way, I hope that's encouraging or at least helpful in some way, shape or form, regardless of what capacity, you know, you lead or serve. And uh, that's about our Facebook page. Coming up next, Amazon's new health band is the most invasive tech we've ever tested. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You know what I haven't done yet is uh, is uh, holidays. I don't know why I got stumbled on the word holidays. I was like, <laughs> I was waiting with bated breath, like, what haven't you done? Where did my brain go? Uh, this first one surprises me, Brian, because yesterday I talked about it being uh, Independence Day for Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. Today is Independence Day, day two for Kazakhstan. For <laughs> real. I'm anxious to see how many days there's going to be of this holiday. I, I'm realizing how gypped we are that we only do July 4th. Like, why not do it a whole week? Make it yeah. an independence yeah. week. That's a good idea. It's also Pan American Aviation Day, which makes sense because it's also Wright Brothers Day. So that's pretty exciting. Oh, I did see that one. Yes. In Bahrain, it's National Day, second day. What is going oh, on? Man, these people know how to do holidays. <laughs> I don't understand it. All right. This one, this is going to be high on the list. If you don't like the item that is being celebrated today, Brian, we're going to have real problems. It's National Maple Syrup Day. Oh, 
please. I'm not. I mean, I'm not without. A don't heart. say, of oh, please. The stuff, the stuff that you've said on this show that you don't like. <laughs> That's true. In fact, most of, the bananas. Things, though, most of the ones I like bananas, too. But That's most true. of the things that you have said <laughs> that, that I have said I don't like, if you put maple syrup on them, I will like them. <laughs> That's that's kind of why I feel so strongly about this. Ma- maple syrup is the great writer of wrongs, in my opinion. It is. And like real, when I, this is, we're going to lose all of our time in the segment. When I was a Boy Scout, one of the things we had to do was collect sap from maple trees in Michigan. Maple syrup in Michigan is phenomenal, by the way. But what people don't realize is that it's, you know, it's usually like a big, like 60 gallon trash can that's collecting the sap, you know, from these trees. And they have to go around and collect the sap. And then you have to like boil it down. And like a 60 gallon thing makes like you know, three and a half ounces of syrup right. or something. But uh, it was a bunch of Boy Scouts. And, you know, we had it on these little carts. And my one buddy was like, you know, goofing off and like tipped the cart over and spilled like 120 gallons of oh, sap, yeah. like all over the, oh my gosh, it was not a, not a good day. That's not I, at all wait, what we're talking about though. But you got to let me tell you one more crazy story. Please do. Story. I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, my wife and I uh, went to college. There was a girl we were both friends with uh, the year behind us. Her last name was Pancake. Okay. <laughs> And she, oh, no. I'm not making the story up. Her last name was Pancake. She was oh, from boy. somewhere in New England, and her family, uh, like the family business, was uh, pay, uh, syrup. Stop. <laughs> well, that kind of makes sense, I'm though. Like people, people whose last names are, you know, Smith or Cobbler. Uh-huh. That I mean, historically, that pans out that their last name would have some kind of correspondence to their. What I'm trying to do really hard right now, Brian, is to in some ways shoehorn what we've been talking about into the article that I want to talk about. And I'm my hope is if I just keep on talking, eventually there will be some kind of bridge, but nothing is popping into my head. So I'm just going to, I'm going to jump in. What do you think? Yeah, let's go for it. (laughs) All right. Uh, From Washington post, Amazon's new health band is the most invasive tech (laughs) we've ever tested. What's, what's going on here? Besides just terror, here we go. Yeah, right. Amazon has the Amazon has a new health tracking bracelet with a microphone and an app that tells you everything that's <laughs> wrong with you. You haven't exercised or slept enough, reports Amazon's $65 Halo band. Your body has too much fat. The Halo's app shows in a 3D rendering of your near naked body. No, thank you. And even your tone of voice is, quote, overbearing or irritated, the halo determines, after listening through its tiny microphone. We hope our tone is clear here. We don't need this kind of criticism from a computer. The halo collects the most intimate information we've seen from a consumer health gadget and makes the Apple absolute least use of it. This wearable is much better at helping Amazon gather data than at helping you get mm. healthy uh, or happy. This Amazon, this Washington Post article is really long, but that's almost enough of it. Like, why would anybody own this? This is like, um, yeah, this is pretty wild that you would have a band that tells you everything that's wrong with you. Uh, that's I don't know. Maybe other people feel like they need that in their life. That is not what I need in my life. Well, and I'm I'm glad you asked that question because I I didn't have any real intentions of reading the entire article. You and I are not tech guys necessarily, <laughs> but I I do think that there's a a deeper, more interesting existential question about one, uh, the lengths at which we'll go to get information even about ourselves, even often at the cost of privacy. And two, uh, where those lengths tend to lead us. Like there's a certain sense where, you know, when people are deleting their Facebook app, 
there's like, usually the online is pretty divided. Like, ah, eh, good for you. And then the other half is sort of secret. Like, I could never live without my Facebook app. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, the moment that you think to yourself, I could never live without blank, you you might want to reevaluate some things. Like, that should be a that should be a, a light on the dashboard. Like, okay, I feel that strongly about Facebook. But I my question is your question. Like, I don't think anyone's buying it because they quote unquote need it. But Amazon's not dumb, and my guess is that. There's been a lot of market research like, yeah, we think we could sell this. We think people would not only be okay with it, but would willingly submit themselves and subject themselves to this type of digital scrutiny. And I'm wondering if you think pastorally, is there something underneath that that is is troubling to you? Not just the like microphone and the blah, blah, not the easy stuff. Like, is there something deeper, more ontological? You're like, gosh, our desire for, I don't know self-improvement or betterment at every cost or any cost, or I don't know. How, how does that strike you? I think it's a, I, I'm guessing it's driven by information. Like I want to know more about myself. Like, okay. you know, it's not a huge step from like we wear, I, I don't have one, but I think my wife has one where you get one of those watches that'll tell you how well you slept or, yeah, uh, right. you know, and, and, but this one just feels like it goes way too far. It's, it's like, uh, working in some stuff that can really make you feel bad about yourself. But I suppose for people who are like, no, I really want to know if I'm, uh, you know, besides not sleeping well, I want to know what I sound like. I want to know if I'm, if I could lose a few pounds and this artificial intelligence can tell me, uh, but man, I do see many ways that, that this can really work against us. And, and I also would want to point out here that this sort of invasive technology, like in this day where we hear people all crazy about the vaccine and, you know, they're going to be tracking us through the vaccine or whatever. They already are like like on these watches yeah. on our phones. Yeah. Right. Like, just right. got to think about these things before you buy them. But I think it's an information thing. I think even bad information, people could say, I just would like to know knowledge is power. So I'd like to know this about myself. Well, and, and you mentioned a phrase that I often hear people say, like, ah, that just feels like they're going too far. All throughout history, every major technological advance has been met first by a large crowd saying, oh, that's too far. I mean, even think like in in the church world, I remember when like digital giving was kind of just becoming a thing and there was an outcry. Like you don't give digitally. You write a physical check like the good Lord intended. And you're like, nah. well, (laughs) at, at some point, writing a check was blasphemous and scandalous within the church. No, you you need to bring your actual cat. You know what I mean? Like. So I, part of me wonders, like, man, in, in 20 years, will everyone have this kind of technology in their home? And it'll be like, oh, it's pretty weird that back in 2020, Brian and Ian and others thought like, well, that feels a, a little invasive. And uh, I don't know. I'm I'm endlessly fascinated slash yeah. terrified by <laughs> that kind of trend in progression. And I don't have like any big takeaway. And a lot of a lot of these segments were like, but here here's how you can have hope in the midst of chaos. I don't have any of that. It's just sort of like, <laughs> well, just don't get the watch. <laughs> right. Right. This seems crazy to me. And uh, I'm kind of curious if it seems crazy to you. Either way, that and everything is up at our Facebook page at Common Good Talk. And we would love to hear from you. I do want to spend the next segment, though. I'm going to talk about uh, mental health and suicide, specifically in the midst of a pandemic. And does that look any different for Christians? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope you like Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. Happy National Maple Syrup Day to you, Brian. Uh, do you have Thank any you plans to celebrate? You. Thank you. Well, I do now. <laughs> and with your, and with I, your spirit. Yeah. I'm going to figure out a way to eat something with maple syrup tonight. And now I, I feel like I have my excuse to do so. Man, I just remembered. This must have been finals week every semester. Judson University, my beloved alma mater, 
it was the it was like the night before finals week would always host this like big pancake waffle bacon dinner oh, in the cafeteria okay. like after hours and it was the greatest because it was again i grew up in a huge family so nothing was ever all you could eat ever 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 like more often than not it was like hey you slept in the food is gone <laughs> like that's, that's <laughs> but like just see a sea of like maple syrup and pancakes and waffles and scrambled eggs and i, I always thought that was a classy move on their part like hey things are about to get crazy uh so here's yeah. here's our gift to you i always i always so loved that when I was at Wheaton, we did something similar, and I'm I'm forgetting now because now I'm old and have been out of Wheaton for like 20 years. But <laughs> I believe it was during finals week. It was during finals week, and every day of finals week, there'd be like a different theme of like study break. It was like study break, and you'd go to again, like you said, to the dining hall, and it might be like taco night one night, and then it was ice cream Sunday night, and you're you're just like, okay, I'm in. So that was good. I love it. All right, so uh, it's a our conversation that's come up a number of times on our show. And I found two different articles specifically around uh, suicide and the others about mental health and some of the correlations between whether or not people are attending church in person, which I find really interesting, but probably also controversial. Do you have one that you want to dive into first? Let's start with the big one out of Philadelphia. It says pandemic depression is a new disorder linked to COVID-19 and it's growing. Research shows people in major metropolitan areas like Philadelphia, that's where this article is out of, are being hit harder by mental health challenges. Students have had their lives turned upside down, mainly with disruptions to schooling. The pandemic is impacting everyone and for many taking a toll on their mental health. It's not just physical ailments as emergency departments are also being bombarded with the emotional fallout from the pandemic. Over a six-week period this summer in Montgomery County outside of Philly, 400 people went to hospitals because of self-injury or suicidal thought. And a new study in Brooklyn shows school lockdowns are having a big impact on children. And so there's a lot more to it than that. But but what I would say is I, I think we're only going to see more and more of this type of research that says uh, mental health um, ramifications from everything about related to COVID-19 and lockdown, what everything related to COVID-19, I think are going to be huge. Uh, and man, it is just the data that's coming out about kids right now is scary mm-hmm. and, and really something we as a culture and as churches need to keep our eyes on because um, the trade-off right now for kids not being in school is uh, a lot of kids really struggling, not just academically, uh, but also emotionally. And uh, I I think especially in that high school age, I think uh, mental health and suicide is something that is going to sadly be a really big topic uh, as we move forward, even as we move out of the pandemic, Lord willing, here sometime here in 2021. Um, this this mental health re- uh, repercussions from the from the COVID nineteen pandemic are just enormous. Yeah, and I, just as a reminder too, if you're feeling suicidal or having suicidal thoughts, I want to encourage you to call the National Suicide Hotline at one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. That's eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. Please, please, please uh, get the help that you need. The other thing that I've been reading, this is from uh, Megan Briggs. I've seen others post similar things this is over at churchleaders.com. The headline reads, with the exception of weekly churchgoers, Americans' mental health is at a 20-year low. So I imagine, and you know, you and I have talked probably more off-air than on-air about even sometimes how divided our own churches can be on should we be meeting, should we not be meeting, if we are meeting, are we meeting safely enough, or is it too safe, have we bent a knee to Caesar, that's one that I hear a lot, all this, all this sort of stuff. This headline, I'm sure, will get uh, a number of people, at the very least, 
to uh, pay attention, to read it. It's a very interesting headline. With the exception of weekly churchgoers, Americans' mental health is at a 20-year low. What's, what's going on with this article? Yeah, as it said, Americans rated their mental health lower this year than they ever have in the past two decades, according to a survey by Gallup. The percentage of people who rated their mental health as excellent or good shrunk by nine points this year compared to last year. But there is one group of people who have actually managed to increase their, quote, excellent and good ratings in a year that has brought stress, anxiety and worry to many. According to the survey, weekly churchgoers are still faring well. Uh, The quote here is this. The latest weakening in positive ratings are undoubtedly influenced by the coronavirus pandemic, which continues to profoundly disrupt people's lives, but may also reflect views of the election and the state of race relations, both of which are on America's minds this year. A report from Gallup said so just over a thousand people were. Uh, were surveyed in November. And this year, the percentage of Americans who rated their mental health positively was 76%. This is down from 85% in 2019. Uh, It's the second lowest rating that has been reported that occurred. I'm sorry, the second lowest rating that ever occurred was in 2002 when the number was 81. So to go down to 76 is a big deal. And so uh, I think there's a couple uh, different things to think about here. One, the you can't miss the major headline here that uh, culturally across the board, um, people's self-assessment of their own mental health is down. People go, no, this has been, uh, this year has taken a toll. Uh, kind of one of the uh, major headlines here for pastors, for churchgoers, uh, for Twitter, uh, is this idea that those people Uh, who said that they go to church weekly, even in the midst of the pandemic, they were the only ones who reported an increase uh, in positivity of mental health. And so I think that's the one people are trying to discuss and debate. But I think the big picture is uh, all people right now across the board uh, are struggling, are struggling more this year than last year, for sure. Well, on the line that is interesting, too, it says the groups that uh, saw the least amount of decline were churchgoers who attend services at least once a week, which is, you know, what I read in the headline, and Democrats. Did you see that? I did, yes. Why, why do you think that is? Because uh, they just won the election, and this was done in November. I think there was a probably a positivity bump. Sure. Sorry, some people don't believe they won the election, but, you know, I think. Sure. Uh, I'm guessing it's that. I'm guessing it is uh, that this was done from November 5th to November 19th. That's when this latest one was done, uh, the poll. And so if you were a Democrat, you were probably feeling uh, a little bump. Uh, but I would guess that that was more of a short term circumstantial one versus the people who said, I go to church every week. Right. Uh, that that one they're they're suggesting might have some staying power. Well, and a little bit later in the article, it does say that it's unclear whether those attending services weekly did so in person or online. But a couple That's appear right. safe to draw from the survey results. Church services act as a boon to a person's mental health and church communities are essential for helping people through adverse times. So that at the very least, that part's probably not controversial. I think the part that could potentially be controversial for some, if someone else, and it doesn't seem like um, doesn't seem like Megan necessarily is, but if someone's saying, man, Apart from actually gathering physically in person, you don't experience any of these benefits. What what would you say to the person who doesn't buy that attending a service online could still have the same types of benefits that attending one in person could? 
Uh, I would say uh, th- there is some of that does depend on the person, but I would also say that for some people going in person is going to cause greater anxiety than anything right now. It's actually going to hurt their mental health, right? Just because mm-hmm. you don't feel that way doesn't mean they're not going to feel that way. Uh, and online church right now, uh, especially some churches are doing it phenomenally, I think can be uh, not just a, you know, uh, a weak representation. I think it could really serve the purpose and it's better. It's not just better than nothing. It's it's a positive. It's a good thing. But you do say there are people on Twitter who I saw who basically took this article and said, see, this is why churches need to be reopened. And right. some big people, Mark Driscoll, for one, I saw tweeted that the other day. And about um, this article? This exact study, I don't know if it was this article hmm. or but it's this, this exact study said, see, this hmm. is why churches need to be open and meeting. Um, but I would say no. I, what I would say is if you're only an online church right now, uh, I would in- make sure you're engaging in it and not just kind of tangentially. Oh, I'll check it out or I might make sure you're engaging. And if you're one of the churches who is only online right now, know that what you're doing is still really important. It's not like some just kind of. You're not just biding your time till you're in person. I would say it's really important and make sure that you realize that the people watching uh, wherever they are uh, need it and they need you. Yeah, that's well said, man. I want to I want to keep talking about the church a little bit, if that's OK, because this mm-hmm. uh, this next headline I just I found so fascinating. It says Christian humanitarian leader says church is, quote, the most powerful force to end hunger crisis in America. That's coming up next year in the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over this World Wide Web. I am uh, I'm watching a show right now, Brian, called uh, Halt and Catch Fire. Have you heard of this show? I have not heard of it at all. No, it's it's pretty interesting, but, it you know, it takes place kind of pre-Internet and kind of the birth of Internet. And it, you know, it's different. A bunch of uh, computer technicians and some of what was happening in the world at that time. It's it's super interesting even to think about how it wasn't all that long ago. Like if we were to travel back in time 20 years ago mm-hmm. and say, we'll be doing radio shows from our basement on okay. computers that fit in a backpack, texting each other from our phones during each, you know what I mean? Like none of that sentence right. would even make sense to someone 20, well, maybe 25 years ago, 20, still no, 20 years ago, man, I, I started my first ministry job uh, at Glen Ellen Bible Church right out of college. It was 20 years ago, wow. 21 years ago. And I'll for, uh, it wasn't, it was three months after I got there that we all got an email address. Like it, that's wow. as new as that was. And I had a computer, but it wasn't a laptop. You know, it wasn't like anything you could carry around with. Right. You. So you of course. You turned your computer off and went home and you didn't check your email till you came back. No, it was, it's still even 20 years, I think is, the concept of what we can do with phones and laptops and stuff, I think is, is mind boggling. So if you could go back in time, 20 years. Yeah, no kidding. All right. So I wanted to end on a, a bit of an inspirational note, inspiration slash challenge. I was kind of challenged by this. It's over at Faithwire, And the headline says Christian humanitarian leader says church is quote, most powerful force to end hunger crisis in America. You want to get us into it? Yeah, this is, this is challenging as you said, but also encouraging. So as a head of Thanksgiving this year, Food banks across the country were handing out meals to thousands of unemployed and underemployed Americans struggling to make ends meet. And as the pandemic and its restrictions continue, new data is predicting one in six Americans could experience food insecurity by year's end. 
Prior to the pandemic, things were rough, Convey of Hope President Hal Donaldson said, and the pandemic has only made things more difficult. This year alone, Convoy of Hope has distributed more than 150 million meals to those in need around the country. Donaldson, that's who leads Convoy of Hope, uh, who himself grew up in poverty, said the organization has partnered with 3,000 churches so far that have turned their parking lots into makeshift dis- distribution centers to give out meals to hungry Americans unable to feed themselves. The efforts of Convoy of Hope couldn't come at a more necessary time. Uh, and so uh, it, it's going to go through some statistics here. But then Donaldson later, whose deep-seated passion is to help those in need, uh, arose out of an unexpected conversation he had years ago with Mother Teresa, who asked him, what are you doing for the poor and the suffering? And he mm-hmm. said his charity's model of partnering with local churches around the U.S. is the most effective way to combat the hunger crisis. He said there's a tendency in America to think that the government should solve every problem. It can't. It absolutely cannot. And politicians want you to believe that they can. They cannot, he said. It's impossible. The only way we're going to turn this around is if people like you and me look on it as more than a government responsibility or a national problems. And so his basic point here is like, A, they want us to know how big of a problem this is. And increasingly, one in six people or households in our country, it says, could be food insecure. Uh, But then Donaldson, this is where you kind of get to the conviction part. He basically Mm -hmm. says, uh, he says he's convinced the local church, quote, is really the vehicle through which Jesus wants to heal our nation and the world. He's raising the bar for the church here. He's saying, whether you're meeting or not, whatever, whatever you're doing, that, that, the, that the way that we can bless people and feed people and help people in this really huge time of need is for the local church to kind of take it up. And as pastors, you and I, uh, this is, uh, is encouraging to be like, yeah, the church does matter. The church really matters. But man, is it also really convicting because you look at your own church and you go, yeah, what are we doing? You know, mm-hmm. what are, I know you guys are doing stuff, we're doing stuff, but, but you're, you, you, it really does go, man, how do we help on this scale where, where mm-hmm. it's this big of a deal, man? It is, it, it should convict us all. Let me, let me read the last three short paragraphs. He says he also predicted that in a post pandemic world, local churches will have realized the tremendous responsibility they have not only to lead people to Jesus, but also to fill their empty stomachs. The church is the most powerful force in the United States, Donaldson said. It's more powerful than the White House and the Capitol, the church. Because it's grassroots. It's in every community across our nation. If you were to ask me, what do you see in the future? He added, I see a united act of compassion. The church working together as never before to meet both physical and spiritual needs and to bring healing to our nation. That's to me, it's it's not just the bringing of health and healing, but also the doing it together. That kind of John 17 type of prayer. Like, okay, we disagree on, I don't know inerrancy of scripture or the Eucharist or women in leadership or whatever. But can we churches in my town or my city, wherever you may be, can we all link arms and agree that people starving in our own city is not a good thing? Like that to part of, I mean, that got, that make it like gives me goosebumps. Like the thought of churches really waking up to that in new ways. And we did a story just a couple of days ago about, you know, some churches are doing, tremendous work one church was a transformation church was like 3.5 million dollars in aid and cars and food and relief so some are apparently crushing it i'd be curious to know what you think the counter argument might be like is it is it that churches don't think it's valuable or 
feel like they lack the resources or it's important, but it doesn't make it on the top five of the priority list. Like, what do you think are some of the hurdles behind churches linking arms and unifying the way that Donaldson is sort of calling us to? I I don't I, I think every church would read a story like this and go, yes, absolutely. That's what we need to do. I think it's right. uh, I, I think it. this is going to sound bad, but we all know it's true. I think we get very uh, we get busy and we get very self-focused. We go, what does our church need? What does my church need? What, what are we doing right now? And it becomes about us. And again, that's not even necessarily a bad thing to be asking. What do my people need in the church or what do we but but it can become really easy. And I think people get this not just pastors. I think everybody gets this. It can become really easy until you're kind of shaken by a story like this to go, yeah, what can we do for my community? How can we be part of the solution? And we do, this article's not wrong. We lull ourselves into going, well, yeah, this is why the government needs to pass the stimulus package, or this is why the government needs to do X, or, uh, you know, what is my church of 200 going to do? Man, that mega church up the road, they should really get at it. You know, that right, kind of right, thing. Right, and, right. Uh, and it just becomes difficult. And I'm not sure churches are good at partnering, not because sometimes it's because they don't want to. We can be territorial that way, but also because it just gets busy and you just all we all just end up thinking about our own churches. And so I'm not sure there's good reasons we don't do this, uh, but I certainly think there are there are logical reasons that kind of stop us that that we need to just get beyond so that people can get fed who need to get fed. Well, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention our partnership with Food for the Poor. They're definitely one example, I think, of yeah. not only doing incredible work, but doing it ethically. And we've talked a number of times on the show about, you know, how much percentage actually is going to really getting the food to the right people and how it also incorporates the gospel. I just think there's there's so many opportunities. Maybe you're listening right now and you're thinking, you know what? This has never crossed my mind. I really I thought the church was for preaching the gospel and baptizing people. And that's it. And maybe maybe you're inspired or challenged in some way. There's a lot of articles like this one. I would encourage you to start somewhere. I'd encourage you to head on over to our Facebook page, read the article, check out some of the organizations, check out Food for the Poor, and see if see if God doesn't stir in some way. Because like we've said a number of times, yeah, it's been a really weird year. And there's a lot of difficult things a lot of us are wearing. And a lot of us are seeing kind of Christmas as the finish line, right? But there's a lot of people, though, December 26th, are still going to be hungry and still in mm-hmm. need of some kind of help, some kind of aid. And I think he's right. I think the Big Seed Church is the hope of the world. I think we're God's plan A and there is no plan B. So whatever that looks like, I want to end hopefully with a just a dash of conviction and maybe a, a greater helping of hope because I think I just think we have an incredible opportunity ahead of us, but the work is not done yet. So let's go. Let's let's get to work. But like always, that's up at our Facebook page and uh, we would love to hear from you. With that, our show is done, though. But Fred Nat will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. If you missed anything, highly recommend you check out the podcast. You can subscribe, rate, and review while you're there. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.